Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family. What a privilege it is. Thank you for keeping us honest, Father. Thank you for telling us the way it is, and thank you for revealing to us your will in time, because it really isn't our will as much as our flesh would like to impose it on you and your standards for righteousness. We don't have that right. You are the sovereign God of the universe. You are the Holy One. Thank you for including us in your plan for salvation. Thank you for sending your Son. For that, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, that that activity on a cross 2,000 years ago cancel out that debt against us so that we might enjoy even an evening like this one, but much more so enjoy the hope that has been instilled within us for eternal life and that we might spend all future with you in heaven. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the difficult passages, and just as a recap, they're only difficult in the sense that man makes them difficult. As you've noted by now, after a year or so of studying the gospel proper, salvation, sanctification, etc., um, these passages aren't difficult. They're really not. Man makes them difficult by injecting his own will into the equation. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And, and, and that's a good segue because <clears throat> I want to begin with a very subtle issue that's been on my heart for some time now, and it's going to require your concentration. So just bear with me and let me see if I can explain it to you. Uh, Regarding God, let's frame it as the essence of God. When we think of God, we must think of His activities and His will as absolutely the same. His activities and His will as absolutely the same. In other words, when God wills anything, what happens? It's done. That's it. Uh, that's how even the world came into being, right? I mean, he willed it, so it was. That's how it goes with God. He's absolute in every sense of the word. He's absolute. So when we think about his activities and his will, we have to think about them as the same. He doesn't do things that, aren't, that are outside of his will, and he never wills anything that doesn't come into being. Do you follow so that's how you have to think about God. So let's just carry this a little step further. We must also recognize that all of his attributes function synchronously at all times, whether it's his integrity, his justice, his righteousness, his loving, kindness, his compassion, uh, his love. Uh, all these things are perfectly synchronous, if that makes sense. Therefore, we should avoid using words like you know, he can't do that, uh, or he must do this. We should avoid that language. Why? Because it puts a twist on God that shouldn't be there. We should use words like, he won't do that, and he desires to do that. 
Those are more appropriate words. I know that it sounds like I'm splitting hairs here. But when you say he can't, it implies that there's a contention or there's some kind of a blockade. Or he must, which means <laughs> some other thing or something has to push him to do something. But that would fracture the synchronicity that I'm talking about. That would fracture the unity of God himself. He doesn't have to do anything, so to speak. It's not like he can't do this and he must do that. But he won't do this because he doesn't will it so. And he desires to do that because that's what he wills. That's a much better way of thinking about God. Because it keeps us from making him our own personal puppet. Well, I did this thing in scripture and it says if I do this thing you must <laughs> I might do what you're saying but it's because I will it and it just happens that our wills are aligned but I don't have to do anything I'm the sovereign God and we have to think about that there's been an awful lot of this talk regarding the gospel um, and that he is sovereign and unless that idea of God's sovereignty and holiness is imposed on mankind, he may never get to his knees and repent, starting with salvation. So this has everything to do with the gospel even. Let's look at it from a second angle, in case that didn't hit home with you. More on the essence of God. If we observe God through a finite lens, which is mankind's way of looking at things, we often inadvertently put him into a struggle with himself. However, if we seek his perspective, we observe that it's by the very will of God that things happen. The point being, God never contends with himself. So if you use, the, excuse me, if you use that language like, you know, he must do that or he can't do that, that's like saying one half of him wants to do something, and the other half is stopping him. Or, you know, one, one half of him doesn't want to do something, and the other, another half makes him do it. God doesn't have that problem, right? That's not, every, to, to God, everything's perfect. There's no weird contention going on in God's soul, so to speak. So again, if we observe God through a finite lens, mankind, we often inadvertently put him into a struggle with himself. However, if we seek his perspective, we observe that it's by the very will of God that things happen. So God never contends with himself. Let me give it to you one other way, a third angle up here on the board. To say that God's grace, since we've been studying grace for a while now, to say that God's grace somehow overrides his justice or vice versa is to suppose that one of his attributes has tension with another. Again, to say that God's grace somehow overrides his justice or vice versa is to presuppose that one of his attributes has tension with another. This is never true. This is the point the Spirit's trying to make in your soul. 
that with God everything's absolute. Man is the one with such internal struggles. You know, I was describing this to someone the other day. We're the ones that struggle. We're the ones who say, oh, just shut up. Oh, nobody hangs up the phone anymore because it's all cell phone. Oh, just shut up. Right? And then two minutes later, I'm sorry. I'm a jerk. God doesn't have those problems. You know what I mean? Or if you're a parent, you're grounded for 10 years. The next day, you're not grounded for 10 years. I was just kind of angry, you know what I mean? Only nine. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? Like, he doesn't have that problem. He doesn't change his mind. It's not like, you know, his justice comes along, his grace is sleeping one day, and his justice comes along and says, boom, 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 and then the next day grace comes along and goes, you can't do that, and he changes his mind. He's not human. He doesn't, he's not bound like that. So those are our problems. That's Romans 7, right? So we mustn't ascribe such things to God. We can't take our lens, our personal experiences, and say, that must be the way it is with God. He's got to do this because His grace said so, as if His justice was like a mean cat, you know what I mean? Judgment, judgment. And then grace comes on, oh, no, no. It's not like that with God. Do you know what I'm getting at? I'm being silly on purpose. That's man's lens of God. And what the Spirit's trying to say to us for a very long time now is let's turn this, let's try to get as much as humanly possible to His perspective and look at even the Gospel from His perspective. What is He going to do? Well, what He wills to happen always happens. He doesn't struggle. He's not confused. So... I believe what happens is that man finds it difficult, for obvious reasons, I'm not being harsh, man finds it difficult to understand God's perspective. And this makes, of course, total sense, given the simple, undeniable fact that the flesh is inherently egocentric. I mean, this is how we were born. The flesh is inherently egocentric, which means we want to see everything through our lens. So it it really does take concentration to set aside our own lenses, if you would. So up here on the board, versus the essence of God. How about the essence of man? Egocentrism precludes its host from being objective about God. Because egocentrism, egocentrism, by definition, means the world revolves around you, in a nutshell. So egocentrism precludes its host from being objective about God. It's impossible to be objective about God or anything in his universe if you're an egocentric. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be known, quote-unquote, from their perspective. You ever run into people like that? They have no, in other words, unless they've personally experienced it or they see it, it can't be. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't your world. And they, they'll say in their own heads, it kind of is. They may not frame it that way. They may not publicly state it that way. But that's the way God sees it. They're egocentric. Everything is from their lens. And everybody ought to sympathize with what they see. Or everybody ought to rejoice with what they rejoice with. 
because it's all about them and they're the center of the universe and they've even got Jesus over here in the wings. Jesus, why don't you, you know, why don't you answer my prayers? Jesus, you go over there now. I'm having a gale time. Woo! Oh, I'm sad. Jesus, come, come, you can be my friend again. And Jesus and God, they're just little puppets. They're just little, you know, utilities for this egocentric person. <clears throat> we can't do that to God. We can't say that, well, this is the way I see the world, so this must be the way God sees the world. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God doesn't have struggles. What he does and what he wills to do are the same thing. We're the ones with the problems, right? Romans 7, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do. We can't put that on God. So the essence of man, egocentrism, precludes itself from being objective about God. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be, quote, known from their perspective. Very difficult to deal with those people. Um, we're all that way, but everybody to a certain degrees, I guess. And I think that's part of growing up spiritually as you start to abandon more so, more and more so, your own thoughts about your own perspectives and how, I mean, I think back even, come on, two years ago, how much my own perspective about certain doctrines that I learned years and years ago have changed even, have been sort of... Um, come full bloom. Ask yourselves, <clears throat> just to help with the concept, how is a baby born? The answer is in the flesh. Every baby that's ever been born is born in the flesh. It's all they have. Is a baby then egocentric? Of course. You know what they're thinking? Give me milk. Give me food, change my diaper, wipe my bum, make me happy, or else I'll scream. That's a baby. We love them, but that's a baby. What, a baby is the epitome of egocentrism. It's all about them, as far as they're concerned. In other words, up here on the board, <clears throat> all infants are egocentric. They are born fleshly. They demand that the rest of the world exists to serve them. They expect that everyone else sees things the way they do, that they are the center of the universe. And then guess what happens? Infants grow up. And unless they're saved, unless they're changed, unless they grow, they remain egocentric. Infants grow up. The point I'm making is simple, so let's retrace our steps. I'm going to go quickly now. The essence of God, and again, these are just things that have been on my heart as they've been sort of percolating up, as we've been going through these lessons, as we've been ferreting out of Scripture, grace and works and the gospel, grace and works and the gospel, and how these things fit together, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God. How do we orient to a sovereign God? When we think of God, we must think of his activities and his will as absolutely the same. We must also recognize that all of his attributes function synchronously at all times. Therefore, we should avoid using words like can't or must in favor of won't or desires, respectively. If we observe God through a finite lens, which is mankind's way, we often inadvertently put him into a struggle with himself, which is 
really ridiculous, but this is what we do. However, if we seek his perspective, we observe that it's by the very will of God that things happen. God never contends with himself. His attributes are never at odds. They're always in perfect harmony. And then the third perspective was to say that God's grace somehow overrides his justice or vice versa is to presuppose that one of his attributes has tension with another. This is never true. Man is the one with such internal struggles, a la Romans 7. We mustn't ascribe such things to God. The issue is, of course, up here on the board, the essence of man. Egocentrism precludes its host from being objective about God. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be, quote, known from their perspective. The Spirit gave us a perfect example on Tuesday evening. Go to Exodus 34.6. Exodus 34.6. And this is what precipitated this thought. Finally, it's sort of been hanging around in my mind as I've been teaching these lessons. Um, And then on Tuesday, he brought out this scripture, and it just made me think of all that I just gave you that so much of what he's been trying to teach us is not new scripture. I mean, most of us have read our whole Bibles multiple times. So it's not like he's saying, all right, you see this scripture? I know it's the first time you've ever seen this scripture. It's brand No. So if the scripture hasn't changed, what else is left? He has to change our perspective on it. He has to say, well, you were thinking about this scripture right here. That's why it was, quote, difficult. You were thinking about it this way. You were looking at the rear end instead of the front end. You were looking at it cockeyed instead of straight on. You were over here because you had this other doctrine took you on this cockamamie journey, and now your viewpoint into this doctrine here is cockeyed. And so you have to actually come back this way, get reoriented. That's why he took us all the way back to the gospel and said, let's travel out from the pure gospel itself out with our doctrines. And then when you're hitting doctrines now, what used to be difficult is no longer difficult. And everything lines up. And you read your Bible and you're like, this is fun. I don't know what my problem was. Well, now you know. Exodus 34, 6. But this is what precipitated uh, the first 20 minutes of class. Verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, "The The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Those are certainly attributes of God. If we were to describe the very essence of God, of course that's part of his essence. Compassion, grace, uh, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions and sin. Yet, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So in other words, God never is not compassionate, gracious, loving, kind, uh, all these things, but he's also just and righteous and judgmental. But these things are never out of whack. These things are never out of whack. What we see here constitutes much of what the Spirit's been 
or just tried to teach you all, um, that God is not to be perceived as ever, quote, at odds with himself, because he isn't. He's never at odds. He doesn't struggle the way a, a parent might. You know, oh, well, what's the righteous punishment for my child? I love them. I want to show them grace. I want to show them X, Y, and Z. But I also want to discipline them because a father that loves his children, what? Disciplines them. So says Scripture. And so I want these things to be sort of not at odds. I don't want to be... But do you see this whole stepwise process that man goes through, these ebbs and these flows? God doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have that problem. To him it's this. Matter of fact, it was this in eternity past. So you cannot superimpose or impose your own lens on God. So he's not like man who ebbs and flows with his own emotions and daily struggles. He is, as Scripture states up here on the board, immutable. That means he doesn't change. That's the fancy word for a God doesn't change. God is immutable. Hebrews 13:8 and 9a, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings that say he is or that God contends with himself or, you know, this kind of a thing. James 1.17, part B, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, God is immutable. That's that. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't do this thing the way man does. He's not at odds with himself. His grace isn't like, you know, the, the white angel on your shoulder and his justice is the red one. And they're warring it out. Do you know this kind of a thing? Do this to them. No, do this. It doesn't happen that way with God. I'll just close out with this thought. <clears throat> God is absolute and not confined. Think of it this way. This is maybe a fourth way of looking at it. God is absolute and not confined by the construct of time even. Therefore, if there's no time from God's perspective then there's no sequence, at least not the way man thinks about it. If there's no sequence, then there's no, quote, changing of God's mind or anything like that. Anything that requires the construct of time, God is not bound to. So God's not changing his mind all of a sudden. We might perceive it that way. The Bible might even describe it that way, right? We call that anthropo. Uh, pathism, right? We ascribe human-type characteristics to God. But that's only to help us out. God doesn't change his mind. God knew in eternity past what he was going to do, even tomorrow. So it helps to think that way, and although it's difficult to think that way, but that's what the Spirit's saying. Turn around and try as much as humanly possible to think about the way God sees things. So there's no, if there's no sequence, there's no changing of God's mind or anything like that. Anytime even a statement in Scripture arises that said God changed his mind, it is from the perspective of, or for even, the perspective of man to help us, because it's difficult for us. So step back for a moment. This is what he's protecting you against. Stop being so mechanical. Seriously, stop being so mechanical. 
in the way you approach God. Stop focusing on God Himself instead of His attributes or even His commands as individual, bitwise, categorical doctrines. Instead of thinking of, quote, assembly lines and gears, think of synchronicity and being when you think of God. Stop putting them on a treadmill, in other words, because that's what man likes to do. See, if you can... If you can synchronize God's activities, then you can put God on a treadmill, can't you? If you can make formulas out of Scripture, then again, you can put God on a treadmill. Because a formula is what we would call, in mathematics, deterministic. If this goes in here, every time this comes out here. If I say this, then God must do that. Right? And this is what man does. Now he starts to invent formulas. We call that religion. And we put God on this little treadmill. If I do this, you must do this. Uh Uh-uh. When I say a command in the Bible, how how have I taught you? What is a command just another name for? It's It's an expression of God's will for man. This is what I want for you. This is my will for you. So we can't do this thing. We can't put God on a treadmill because that's what, God, and that's what man likes to do. So stop thinking that way. Now, let's see if we can apply this to what we've been learning. And here's what I've got for you in terms of connective tissue up here on the board. Grace perspective. We've been learning an awful lot about grace. We've still got works in the wings here. <clears throat> God's grace is what's best for you. Not to you. Not, In other words, (laughs) this came up on Tuesday. I'm rephrasing it. God's grace is what's best for you. You may disagree. It's not what's best to you. In other words, not what you think. At least not always. When perceived as for you, you understand that His will is done. However, when perceived as to you, you understand falsely that your will be done. Again, God's grace is what's best for you, not to you. I said this many times over the past couple of weeks. God's grace is not designed to accommodate man. It's designed to accommodate God. If it's good for you, if it's best for you, it's accommodating God. If it's good to you, then from your perspective, it's accommodating you. That's the distinction he's been making. And you see how slippery it is when you take man's lens and you impose it on Holy Scripture. You start assuming that God thinks the way you think. That as you were born completely egocentric and you still get the vestiges of that, in your flesh, that you can put God on a treadmill. You can say to God, well, grace to me is when you do what I want. And you come up with this perversion of grace that says grace now equals accommodation to me. And he's saying, no, no, no. my grace brings glory to me, says God. 
whether you like it or not, is not the issue. I may even make you suffer. And that's still grace. Because I'm going to, like Scripture says, grow you through that experience. These are the perspectives. You see, because they're subtle, Satan, who's a genius, has done a masterful job at propagating doctrines that undermine the body of Christ itself, the church, the little seed churches. Let me put it a bit more colloquially. <clears throat> a broken clock. Even a broken clock is correct twice a day. A person can sometimes be correct, but for the wrong reason. Just because your will happens to align with God's will doesn't mean you are righteous. In other words, <laughs> if grace is good, grace is for you and to you, those two things happen to align, you know, like twice a day, doesn't mean that the grace to you, this previous right here, grace is what's best for you, not to you, doesn't mean that your perspective, even though it happens to align with God like a broken clock twice a day, doesn't mean that your perspective is righteous. Do you get it? That's what he's saying. I know it's abstract. I know it's somewhat difficult to comprehend, but this is what he's saying. This is how slippery Satan is. Satan's a genius. And if he's going to undermine the gospel of all things, in grace, the very linchpin of the gospel, this is how he does it. It's called misdirection. Change a little definition. Grace equals accommodation. Because, remember, God is love. God is love. And love trumps everything. <laughs> Even a broken clock is correct twice a day. A person can sometimes be correct, but for the wrong reason. Just because your will happens to align with God's will doesn't mean you are righteous. You may want something for a completely different reason. You may say, I'm going to do this one thing, I want to do this one thing, and God says, I want you to do this one thing, but I need your attitude to be correct about it. Not this selfish one, not to you, but for you. I need your attitude to be correct. I don't want you to suffer and then blow your trumpet. Look at me suffering. Da, 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 da. I'm, Jesus. I'm Job. I'm Job. No, you're not. You're a jackass. You're blowing your trumpet. And God's saying, geez, I, I, I prefer to have you suffer and actually be like Job. God giveth, God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That was Job's attitude, even when his wife was haggling with him. Curse God and die. And he never really gave up. He cracked, but you see the difference, though? A broken clock is analogous to a person whose perspective is dominated by their own self-will. That's the broken clock analogy. It represents a person whose perspective is dominated by their own self-will. They say, I'm just going to stand right here. I'm not going to move. 
I'm going to stand right here, and as God's sort of will circles around, every so often I'm going to say, see? See? Right? And day after day, see? Does God not want you to go to church? Yeah. Of course he does. See? But what about the other God knows how many hours in the week? Are you still... You see, that's the broken clock. That person is still dominated by their self-will. And what we've seen in Scripture time and time again is, in many cases, they're so dominated, they've actually never been delivered from it, which means they're not even saved. Even an unsaved person, as we know, can do a lot of things that look and are, quote, under God's moral law even. You know, like the restraining law. I don't want to get di- I don't want to digress though. Up here on the board. What he's trying to do is give us a different perspective. These are wholly different perspectives now. A righteous person seeks to reconcile to God's perfect will. In other words, the movement is with that person. Your will be done. That's how we're supposed to pray, says our Lord. An unrighteous person desires that God's will reconcile to their own. I'm going to stay put. You want to circle around so I can say, see, you, you go about your business, God, but I'm staying right here. This is my world. I'm egocentric. Everything and everyone, including you, revolves around me. This is so very much of what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit as of late whether you realize it or not. This is the sort of the summary of so much of what he's been saying about grace and how Satan has gone about perverting grace and what it looks like and why people adopt it. Why do people want a definition for grace that says grace equals accommodation? Why do you think? Because the flesh is completely egocentric. That's why. Because the flesh would totally desire Nothing less than God to orient to them, to them. For, for the flesh to be the sovereign in a person's life. And that God somehow is this little begging deity that says, please let me save you. That's not the gospel at all. He's sovereign and holy. We have a problem. Thank God he solved it for us. But we have to at least be humble enough This is the gospel, my friends. This is what he's saying to this church for a long time now. It's humility. Nowhere have these thoughts been more exemplified and amplified than our, going, our ongoing discussions <coughs> excuse me, regarding the gospel proper. Arguably, the greatest emphasis to date has been on the following, up here on the board. On life and death. If God makes us alive in Christ, assuming he saves us, we can never die again, can we? I mean, Romans 6, 2, how can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Our very nature is changed. We're alive in Christ. Because we're alive in Christ, we're no longer partakers of spiritual death other than in the practical sense, where we journey back there and 
slop around in it a little bit. But our very nature has been changed. A gospel that subtracts from God's will and grace at salvation. Remember, they're the same. If he wills it, he does it. Do you understand? If he wills it, he does it. A gospel that subtracts from God's will and grace at salvation, quote, leaves room for so-called believers living in sin after so-called salvation. It's a theology that departs from truth. In other words, I guess you can live in sin still. When Scripture says blatantly you cannot. But you see how that works? But it's more accommodating if I can still live in sin. The gospel itself, if it's underpinned by a grace equals accommodation grace theology, the gospel itself becomes accommodating. And it says to people, go ahead, take your free ticket to heaven, but live in the slop until you're ready. Because you're not really changed. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's what a perverted gospel looks like. It's not the only perversion. So what we see here is simple. It is man saying to God that he desires, remember, willful, arrogance. It is man saying to God that he desires willfully to remain living in sin while receiving the gracious gift of eternal life in heaven. Do you, quote, see what man is supposing and why our previous principle is so poignant? Man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him, and then he'll call it grace. Do you see it? He wants God to reconcile to himself, and then he'll say, since God loves me so much to do that thing, to prove his love to me, let's call that grace. And I'm talking about spiritual condition issues. I'm not talking about grace reaching across chasms. We know that grace does that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about salvation proper here. I'm talking about us being at enmity with God, and that we have to be reconciled to Him. He is immutable. That means He's never changed. He's God. Jesus Christ was described as what? The rock. But His man, seeking to impose His will over God's, He wants God to accommodate Him and then call it grace. But you see, that's not God's grace at all. That's a perversion. Again, up here on the board. Those are wholly different perspectives. A righteous person seeks to reconcile to God's perfect will. An unrighteous person desires that God's will reconcile to their own. Now, here's where our lessons begin to converge from the broad concept of grace to the narrower, more scoped concept of works. Up here on the board to get us situated. Grace and works. This is our title after all, part 16. We're finally getting to works. 
but as I said at the beginning of class, once you understand the greater things in the Bible, like grace even, then works are easy. They're obvious. Of course they make sense. Of course this is the way it's supposed to be. It's impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. A limited viewpoint means a limited perspective, which can only lead to confusion. This confusion is not from God. We know this from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Peace. He doesn't want you to be, have, lack peace in your soul. He wants you to be at peace. He's not a God of confusion. Nor is any pain involved in extracting it, the surgeon's fault. I'm the surgeon here. Trying to carve out false doctrines. Trying to carve out, trying to, you know, say, okay, you've got to let go, flesh. No, pick up the fingers. Let go. Arguably one of the most obvious passages dealing with, dealing with works is uh, James 2. Go to James 2.17. James 2.17, where we see something so blatant and so obvious in Scripture that it's hard to believe that people can test over it at all, and why they might, but I would go back to the statement that if your idea of grace is perverted, then what you understand about works is going to be perverted. And so when you get to James 2.17, you may very well become confused. But it's not a confusing passage at all. It's actually very simple. So let's just read it with the faith of a child at face value, because that's what it requires. James 2.17, even so faith, if it has no works, how do you get faith, by the way? By grace. So faith is a derivative of grace. Okay? So even so, faith, by grace, you could pluck in there. If it has no works, talking about true faith, if it has no works, it's dead. In other words, it's not true faith, at least not the faith that God gives. Even an unbeliever can have faith in something. Most have a lot of faith in themselves. So we know there's different categories of faith, but James is putting it on the line saying, even so, faith, if it has no works, is necros. Dead. Dead things don't move. They don't do good things. They produce no good works. They do nothing as far as God is concerned. The Bible calls those things wood, hay, and straw. Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What does he mean? But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is actually standing up for the simple fact that if you, have, if you have true faith, which only a believer can have, if you have true faith, guess what you will have? You will have works. That's what James is saying. The only people that are confused about passages like this are the ones who have grace perverted in their souls. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Why is that in there, you think? Do we need to recover all that stuff? But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? God doesn't produce useless things. You know what else is called useless? You know what else is called a menstrual rag? An unbeliever. And his works. 
That's the language that's used for unbelievers. That's the language that's used for things that aren't by faith. Counterfeit fruit. Tears among the wheat. Do you understand? That's, that's the kind of language that the Bible uses for people who don't have faith. So faith without works is useless. Throw it out. Throw it out. God's grace never produces useless things. Man's really good at it. But God's doesn't do that. It's inconsistent with his essence. I mean, if, if his ultimate goal is to bring glory to himself, why would he produce useless things? In this context, I hope you get it. Okay? Here's what we've been learning. Grace and works appear on the board. Any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. Tattoo that on your brain. Any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. I hope you see the direct relationship here up here on the board. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been learning. I, last class I taught on Sunday, and I think Scott reiterated on Tuesday to all three of you, God is grace. God is grace. Do you understand? Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Manufacturing a different gospel, a little g gospel. The word of God says don't add or subtract from any of it. Right? So don't. If this is God's grace, which is a function of his will, and those things are absolutely conjoined, to use a, I don't know, a man's word, I guess. They're synchronous. They never operate divorced from one another. If that's the case, then what God desires to do when he saves someone, that's what happens. And if he says, I'm going to save you from death and make you alive again, a brand new creature, the only thing that creature can do, as James just said, is walk in faith and produce good works. Not that we won't fall. Not that we still don't have this thing. That's not the point. Either you're made new or you're not. But you see, that's not accommodating to man's um, desires. The rich young ruler in us. The one who says, how do I inherit eternal life but keep myself life? doesn't accommodate that person. But you see, in our neck of the woods, in, this, in the Western culture, in America especially, we're all rich by world standards. We're all rich. So we don't really want to give up the self-life. <laughs> right? So what is... All right, here's the genius of man, the inventiveness of man. Okay, well, if nobody wants to come to God on his terms the gospel. Let's pervert churches like this one and move God closer to us in, in our doctrines. Do you get what I just said? That's what man does. That's what, that's what American churches do. There's so much of the rich young ruler attitude in America that 
churches now, just to fill seats and pay their rent, have compromised the gospel itself. Because if they start offending people the way Jesus did, you know, the stumbling block, nobody would show up. Well, who's this about anyways? Who's this about? Honest to goodness. So you have to, you have to step way back and go, wait a minute, is that true? Yeah, it's true. That's how this shepherd sees it. A bunch of churches that have a cross on the top, most of them are much larger than this one, who literally compromise the gospel to accommodate man. And all we have to do is go back in the Bible and say, well, what did Jesus do when he was faced with that kind of scenario? Get out of here. <laughs> Come back when, you got, when you're ready. Come back when you have a little speck of humility. That's what Jesus said. If he was standing right here, he'd probably be a lot worse than me. Quote, unquote, worse. Harsh, maybe. Direct. But this is what's going on in our country, my friends. Nobody's willing to stand up for the sovereignty of God anymore. And so you have this, these pathetically hacked-off Gospels that claim a ticket to heaven that just completely undermine the grace of God. Satan's really smart. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it's more accommodating, but it's a deceptive trap. Up here on the board is some food for thought. I can't believe I'm almost out of time. You know we still didn't get the works? Oh, the new creature? The, honest to goodness, the new creature's been in my notes now for like three weeks. But we're going to get there, I promise. Hey, it's his good timing, right? Food for thought. Have you ever noticed that the so-called, quote, Christians in this world that are confused about works are the same ones, if you dig deep enough into their doctrinal statements, like I do sometimes, it's painful, but I do it, they're the same ones that are confused about grace. Honestly, it's true. Have you ever noticed that the so-called Christians in this world that are confused about works are the same ones that are confused about grace? What did Jesus say on the cross? Tetelestai. You know what that means? It is finished. Either it's finished or it's not. I guess some people think it wasn't because now they have to take the gospel and add stuff to it. Or else you ain't going to heaven. Take the free gift and add some works to it. I guess Tetelestai, I guess Jesus was... You know, he's so dysfunctional. He's all messed up up there, the heat stroke or something. He's lost his marbles. He meant to say, almost tetelestai. <laughs> right? So since he was screwed up, can you believe where this is going? But this is what you have to do to the gospel, the purity of, the simplicity and purity of Jesus Christ. This is what you have to do when you have perversions of grace. You have to stop mucking with the gospel itself. Either he was, either he... He said Tetelestai and meant it, or he didn't. That's what mocking with grace can do, my friends. And that's what you'll find. People are confused about works. They put them, you know, they, they put them here or they take this off, make a human work by 
taking part of the gospel part. And they, they say, I'll put it over here, I guess, for later on, for consumption later on when I'm ready. And that becomes a human work. And everybody's all screwed up. And we wonder why. Everybody's, it's ridiculous. Come on, can we just stop? I don't want to get political, but can we, everybody stop blaming the politicians? You know, they're not, it's not, they're just symptoms. The real problem is no, nobody has God anymore. That's the problem. No matter who we hire, they could hire me. I'd be killed in a day, <laughs> right? Literally. Be killed in probably within minutes. I'd step out of that limo the first time. Hey! <laughs> right? And what's his name? Hinkley's back out, so just saying, same scene, better practice on it. Right? It's not about that. We need to elevate our thinking and say, whatever, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. The problem is our country is wretched. I know I love my country. Look, I served her. It's not that I don't love my country, but she's wretched. She's a tramp. She's a hoe. <laughs> I hate to say it that way. She really is, and she's a spiritual hoe. Bill's like, what is that? It's like, is that like a gardening thing? Yep, it's a gardening thing, Bill. Right? She's a tramp. You don't think the Bible talks about prostitute nations? What do you think we're peddling out there? How dare we peddle adding or subtracting from the gospel? Because we have both in this country of ours. We have both. And people listen to us because we're America. And we're supposed to be the quote-unquote leaders of the free world. But what are we leading to? Seriously. There's a reason why I get shot. There's a reason why nobody wants to hear this message. There is a reason. It's because nobody wants God. They want a free ticket to heaven if there's such a thing as heaven and hell. Because you ask the people nowadays, geez, you know, I don't even know about heaven and hell anymore. Well, first of all, that's not even the problem. The problem is you were born in sin. Do you get that? What? Yeah, you're, don't use this. Don't use the menstrual rag one, like right out of the gate. It might be a stumbling block, I'm just saying. All things to all people. You're a menstrual rag. What? Close the door. Dinner's off. Don't use that. But that's the reality, isn't it? People need to realize, man, this is holy, sovereign God. And this is man. You got a problem. God's immutable. He's not moving. We either take his grace for all it is and say, well, what do you do? Well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do all of it to the T. You can't add, you can't subtract. I'm going to do this things right here. You're humble. I see it. You want it. I give it to you. But you want to stop mucking with my grace? You want to start, um, you know, bargaining like a lawyer? You know, in the Bible, the lawyers are constantly doing that. Mm, Jesus, you know, always trying to angle them in the corners. He's way too brilliant, but that's what they tried to do. Satan, the same thing. Scripture says. And Jesus responded, it is also written. So stop misapplying Scripture. Satan's very, very smart. He's not afraid to use Scripture. He's not afraid to put a, a cross on the top of a building and say it's a Christian church and invite people in and say, this is the truth. And he's lying through his teeth. And the guy, or the God forbid, the woman, or even worse, the transgender it, is standing behind a pulpit saying, hey, listen, this is the truth. I'll just lie through my teeth. I'm an agent of, 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 uh, of darkness, as is my father, who also poses himself as an angel of light. 
And I'm going to lie to all these people, and thousands upon thousands of people are going to show up, because you know why? Because in this country, they want an accommodating gospel. They do not want the truth. So, Satan gives them what they want. Economics 101. You don't like the President of the United States or the whatever's going to be there next? What? It's economics. How'd they get there in the first place? That's what our country wants. That's what our, that represents what our country wants. <laughs> you get it? This, this, all because of what? Because nobody wants God. God's sitting there saying, I will bless your socks off in every way possible, more than you can possibly even dream of. But you've got to be humble. Oh, you know, God, you were right there. Until you said I had to give up my self-life, you were right. You almost had me. You had me at hello. <laughs> right? You almost had me. But no. No. I have become rich. I have need of nothing. Sound like Revelation 3? And God says, you're lukewarm. I vomit you out. That's America. And I'm not anti-American, trust me. I'm glad we live here. I'm glad we have this freedom to do this. That's part of God's sovereign will. I realize that. But let's call spades spades here. Why are we so screwed up? You know why? Because the gospel itself has been completely perverted. The gospel's not even the gospel anymore. Christianity's not even Christianity anymore. At least not in this country. But I'd be willing to bet when I go to India in May, I bet you I'm going to see something different. I'm not going to see a bunch of rich young rulers. I'm going to see a lot of individuals in great need who are clinging to the Lord that aren't self-righteous. They want nothing more than to do His will. I'd be willing to bet that's what I'm going to see. Something to think about. Amen? I'm out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege of studying Your Word here this evening. We ask Your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> thank you.